Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This text is not for the faint-hearted preacher. It's one of the many reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is to protect you from our cowardice. Because uh, I don't know that anybody would choose this passage if they could. And this sermon is going to feel a lot like the end of Empire Strikes Back. You know, things are just not going well for the Rebel Alliance, right? Luke Skywalker doesn't have a hand anymore. Darth Vader's his father. Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. It's just bad all across the board. But the bad news of the Empire Strikes Back sets you up for the good news of the best Star Wars film ever made, Return of the Jedi, where you get to see the victory. Unfortunately, that's not the most controversial thing I'll say this morning. So the reason for that is that there's few things that could be more offensive than the Bible's take on the wrath of God and homosexuality. Few things more offensive to our modern sensibilities than those things. And so I'm inviting you this morning to practice the art of charitable listening. Give me the benefit of the doubt that I genuinely love you that I'm for you, and that I believe God speaks through this book, and that both of those things really matter. 
And so that's the invitation on your end. This morning, our text, Paul basically begins his explanation of the human crisis. That question of what is wrong with the world is one of the most important questions you can ask and answer. And it's worth noting that all of us agree there's something wrong with the world. We shouldn't just pass by that quickly, although we will this morning. It's worth noting that everybody knows it's not the way that it should be. And how you answer that question, what's wrong with the world, says a lot about you. It says what you're for and what's your, what you're against. How you define the problem is also going to help point towards what you think is the solution as well. In the early 1900s, the London Times uh, wrote a responsive essay uh, or, or put out a prompt for a responsive essays. Um, and this was the prompt. What's wrong with the world? To which the witty British writer G.K. Chesterton replied, These short one-sentence essay, he said this, Dear sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And in less than 10 words, Chesterton humbly summarizes all that the text has to say to us this morning. You see, we live in a culture, we live in an age that wants to place our problems anywhere but with us. Right? So whether it's our family of origin brain malfunction, chemical imbalances, personality disorders, I was born this way, social constructs, systemic injustice, on and on and on. And hear me, listen, this is important. All of those things cause very real problems in real people's lives. But none of them are the problem. It is the most irresponsible and unkind doctor who would let their patient persist in a misdiagnosis. Confusing the symptoms for the disease, especially if that disease is fatal. And so like a good doctor, Paul is going to do some diagnostics for us this morning. Because nothing keeps people from the solution than their inability to see the problem. And similarly, nothing keeps people from Jesus like our unwillingness to admit our need for him. Nothing. And so if, as I argued last week, the gospel is for all, then it must be needed by all. If the gospel is for all, it must be needed by all. That's why Paul marshals evidence to bring all of us inside of this accusing text so that you will appeal to the merciful custody of Jesus. Now, if you take this text and you use it as some sort of a passage to point the finger at some other kind of sinner, you're missing it. And if you, need to, if you need Bible proof for that, you just look at the way that Paul starts the very next chapter. Romans 2.1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, O woman, O human being. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul's intention in this text is to leave all of us without excuse. And he does that. For those who have ears to hear, he does that. Uh, there's a video you can find on YouTube of um, Pastor Tim Keller doing, getting grilled during a Q&A at Columbia University. And among the questions he has to respond to are, are these. Is homosexuality a sin? And do people go to hell because they're homosexuals? To which he replies, you don't go to hell for being a homosexual because you don't go to heaven for being a heterosexual. I happen to know something about that. He says instead, if you go to hell, it's because of your own, unrighteous, your own self-righteousness. 
The only people that go to hell are the people that are unwilling to admit that they need intervention from outside themselves and refuse to turn to Jesus to offer that intervention as their Savior and their Lord. The only way to have heaven opened up is for us to have a connection with Jesus, a, 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 a being in him in a way that opens up the world of eternal life with him and God. So what that means is that there are plenty of Bible-believing people out there who think that God is going to welcome them into his heavenly courts because they are good and they're proud of it. And it's the very thing that keeps them from God and his heavenly courts. That's essentially a summary of our text this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Romans 1, 18 through 32 under three headings. The first one is humanity against God. The second one is humanity against humanity. And the third one is God for humanity. I get those first two points directly from verse 18. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up or turn on to Romans 1, verse 18, and look with me there. Verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness is against God. It's the vertical dimension. It's our unwillingness to bear his image properly. Unrighteousness is against humanity. It's the horizontal dimension. It's us not living in right relationship with our neighbors. And, and, and according to Paul, this is what God opposes. So let's talk about the wrath of God. God's wrath is not like your anger, which is often kindled because of selfishness and inconvenience. That's not how God's wrath is. In fact, the best definition I know is by John Stott. He says this, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. That's the wrath of God. And in fact, God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. Wrath is the response of holy love to human sin. No human sin, no wrath. It's not an attribute of God for him to be wrathful. And so what is God supposed to do as he looks out at humanity's horrors? Shrug his shoulders? Sweep it under the rug? Roll his eyes? Like, imagine if God did not have an uncompromising antagonism towards rape, murder, torture, on and on we could go. What kind of God would he be? Now, let me be clear. If God were not angry with those things, he would not be a good God. In fact, God's indifference would reveal his malevolence. And so we can say, okay, amen. Like we, we agree with the egregious sins, right? But where does he stop opposing evil? Lust, lying, bitterness, backbiting, critical spirit towards other people, contempt. Where does he stop? You see, the problem for us is that if God is good, he must act decisively, dramatically, and personally to oppose evil in all of its manifestations. And the line of good and evil runs not between us versus them, but it runs right down the middle of each of us. That creates a problem for us. If I'm indifferent to another man's advances towards my wife, I'm not honoring her and I'm not a good husband. For God to remain indifferent to the evil 
the human evil in this world would make him no longer a good God. Because an all good God must be antagonistic to evil in all of its manifestations because God's wrath is a manifestation of his holy love. But this truth is overwhelming for people. It's overwhelming, especially for those of us who treasure our pet sins and our personal evils. And so we're left with really only one option to cope with it, which is denial. And that's what Paul goes on to unpack. Look again at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I was talking to my barber during a haircut and my barber was telling me about when, how he used to make money before cutting hair, which was stealing motorcycles. And he told me this, uh, and he told me with a pretty humble posture too. He was like, listen, man, I would actually tell myself when I would walk up on a motorcycle I was about to steal, and if I saw like scuff marks on the gas tank or like a missing rearview mirror, I, I told myself, I'm actually doing them a favor because they're going to kill themselves if I don't steal this bike from them. And in his humility, my barber literally said, it's amazing what you will tell yourself. He didn't know, but he was quoting Paul, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's what was happening in that moment. So listen, if you've made a prior settled decision to live for yourself rather than for the love of God and neighbor, then you will deliberately stifle anything that challenges your self-centeredness. Self-deception is one of the biggest human problems. And so, in our culture, deconstruction is kind of a fad right now. People who were Christian and aren't anymore. And I just want you to hear, some of those are stories of people wanting to do what they want to do. And so they mask it, they cloak it with intellectual doubts that aren't actually there. And you can tell by how they've done the hard work to wrestle with those doubts. Often, no. One of my favorite definitions of mental health is from M. Scott Peck. He says, it is the ongoing commitment to reality at all costs. Paul's saying we're all pretty mentally unhygienic. So what truth is it that we're suppressing, Paul? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. I'm going to emphasize these words. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You see, humans are incurably religious and we live in a God-haunted universe. We're without excuse. If we have ears to hear, the whole world is saying all the time, whether it's the trees or the birds or the mountain or the sunrise, it's all crying out, we did not make ourselves. He made us who abides forever. Don't look at us. Look beyond us. Look through us. Look past us to our maker. If we have ears to hear, we'll hear that. And so it's as if God is broadcasting every day and in every way, constantly communicating to us that he exists, that he's good, that he's generous, that he's creative, and we change the channel. We were made to tune into God's broadcast and we change the channel because we can't unbear, we can't bear that knowledge. So Paul goes on in verse 21, for although they knew God, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Since we know enough to be grateful, we know enough to be guilty. 
And, and you might be wondering, how is this all rooted in ungratefulness? That's, that's what Paul's arguing here. Well, it depends on your anthropology. What's your view of human beings? If human beings are animals on a self-defined quest for individual freedom, self-definition, and self-expression, then this makes no sense, admittedly. It's foolishness, it's nonsense. But if you don't have such a low view of human beings, you actually have the exalted view of human beings that the Bible has, which John Calvin articulated when he says that to be human means to be that place in the cosmos which responds to the goodness of God with gratitude. If that's your anthropology, if that's what you believe human beings are, then it makes all the sense in the world why this is not an optional extra to give thanks. In fact, it's our primary human vocation to respond to the goodness of God with gratitude. But we refuse to do it, so Paul goes on in 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In that short paragraph, we hear the first two of three what have been called fatal exchanges. If you want to understand this text, every time you see the word exchanged, underline it. It'll help a lot. There's three of them in our text. The first two are the, the exchange of the creator for the creature, and then it, that's in verse 23, and then the creator, uh, I'm sorry, the truth for a lie, which is in verse 25. Listen, we were made for God, but we prefer alternatives. Because this exchanging is about preference. Like this afternoon, if I go buy food, I give them money because I prefer a full stomach to a full wallet. Right? Why do you exchange? You exchange something based on preference. And so by definition, we prefer, first of all, the sameness of the creature over the otherness of the creator. So in verse 23, it says that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. But second, it says we prefer the sameness of our own wisdom over the otherness of God's revelation. So in verse 25, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Consider what it feels like to be preferred for others to prefer somebody over you. Just like what that feels like. Now just dial it up a little bit. What if it's your own child who you created or your own spouse who you covenanted with and they prefer somebody else over you? What does that feel like for you? How does God respond? Well, three times in our text, you can underline this as well. Three times in our text, it says God gave them up. God gave them up. God has given people over to the lusts of their hearts, verse 24, to their dishonorable passions, verse 26, and to a debased mind, verse 28. Here's the principle at play here. God gives us what we most want. God gives us what we most want. God says, hey, if that's your preference, if you want to make that trade, you can have it. This is called theologically the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God. And, and here's the goodness of God in it. God is totally non-coercive. He just refuses to manipulate you. He actually respects the dignity of the will that he gave you. And so because of that, beware what you want most because you'll get it. That's the passive wrath of God. 
he will give you the very thing you want the most. In Jeremiah 2, it says this, my people have committed two evils. First of all, they've, forsake, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second of all, they've hewed for themselves broken cisterns that could never hold water. In other words, hey, I've got this ever-growing ever source of fresh water available, but if you want to guzzle pond water, if you want to guzzle salt water, go have at it. Just remember when it, just pay attention to whether it actually slakes your thirst. Because maybe after you've given yourself to a, a few gallons of salt water, just guzzling that down to slake your thirst, maybe then it'll purify your preferences. It's the passive wrath of God. So brothers and sisters that are here this morning, you might think of God's wrath and think fire from heaven or thunderbolts or floods, something dramatic, and, and that is biblical too. But there's another way that God's wrath shows up. It's in this subtle, invisible, handing sinners over to themselves. So what does that mean for you this morning? It means, listen, if you're harboring a hidden sin and you think you're getting away with it, beware. You might be being given up to it. It's not something to trifle with the living God. He may just hand you over to the very thing you want more than him. Damien has said before in sermons that he prays that all of his children will get caught. Why? Why would you pray for something like that? Because we all know that the severe mercy of getting caught is better than the subtle horror of being given up. And so the first two fatal exchanges are against God. God created us in his image and we returned the favor. As Pastor Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. It's not the real you, you know, the one that's got back aches and slips off the handle when you don't want to. No, 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 it's an idealized version of you. If God can't disagree with you, beware of who you're actually worshiping. And so the first two fatal exchanges are against God. The third and final exchange is against humanity. The reason for this is because the vertical exchange of idolatry results in the horizontal exchange of immorality. Idolatry and injustice are two sides of the same coin. And so a summary of this entire text could be put like this. Refusing to honor God, we dishonor ourselves and each other. Refusing to honor God, we dishonor ourselves and each other. So look with me at the second point, which is humanity against humanity. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nation, nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Why does Paul jump from worship to sex? Because in the biblical imagination, idolatry is sexual infidelity. The prophets are constantly comparing idolatry to harlotry, God's unfaithful wife. That's the way that we see idolatry depicted. And this is why. It's because sex, the good gift of sex, is, is, is in Scripture either a window or a mirror. It's a window through which we can glimpse the intimacy and the pleasure of union with God. Or it's a mirror that reflects back to ourselves our, sex, our selfish sexual desires. 
It's either a window or a mirror. And so the third exchange that we see is natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. It's a preference for the sameness in a sexual partner over the otherness of the opposite sex. Now we're going to jump in here. So let me make a few preliminary remarks. First, as Damien already said, our theologian in residence, Michael Allen, recorded a podcast on this text with Nate Claiborne our director of content and education, I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's very good. I also have lots of resources on this topic that I'll happily send to you if you reach out to me. I really know how thorny and difficult this can be for us to navigate right now. The second, the church has historically failed in loving our LGBTQ plus neighbors. And don't forget that's the second great commandment, so it's a big one, and we failed at it. That has to be named out front. And so what that means is, if you just paid attention, how many religious people have you seen holding signs that say, God hates the greedy? How many bigots have you seen holding up signs that say, God hates gossips? Ask our neighbors in the LGBTQ plus community, and most of them will tell you that the message they get from the church today is God versus the gays. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for those who bear the name of Jesus. Third, some of you in this room have, you experienced strong and persistent feelings of attraction to the people of the same sex. And living with the burden of that sexual desire when the culture says you're crazy for not indulging it, and some parts of the church say that you're in another class of sinner is almost unbearable. And so hear me say this, like hear what I'm about to say right now. We are committed to being family with you here at New City. We are committed to walking alongside you as we leave all to follow Jesus together. That's the call to all of us. When Jesus bids us to come, he bids us to come and die, to leave everything to follow him. And we have a lot to learn from your costly obedience. Fourth, our culture has given us two options, affirmation or alienation. That's it. I don't want to play that game. It's a, it's, a, it's a rigged deck from the beginning. And so our sexual ethic increasingly looks like an obstacle to progress to majority of our neighbors. Dr. Peter Lightheart outlines why that is by naming some of the assumptions of our current cultural moment. He named them like this. There's five of them. They're brief. First, yourself is closely bound up with your sexual inclinations. Second, you can't flourish unless you discover and develop yourself, that is, your sexual inclinations. Third, anyone who inhibits your self-development is attacking your dignity as a human being. Fourth, every self has a right not to suffer. And fifth, every self must accept every other self and affirm his or her life projects. Those five principles kind of underlie the cultural moment that we live in. And so, because of this, some Christians ignore at best or twist at worst what the Bible says about homosexuality in order to love their gay neighbors. But other Christians ignore what the Bible says about loving their gay neighbors in order to uphold what they believe is a biblical sexual ethic. Neither of these options are available to a faithful disciple of Jesus. If you want to know the, the, the needle I'm trying to thread right now, it's this. Truth makes love possible. Love makes truth bearable. 
Another way to say that is truth without love kills, but love without truth lies. We don't have an option but to follow Jesus, holding together truth and love as we move towards our neighbors who are unlike us. And so as we look at what Paul wants to say to us this morning, I'm going to ask you some questions. What is your definition of a healthy sexuality look like? Where did you get that definition? How did you arrive at that definition? What is your authoritative guide to life in this world? In other words, what has ultimate moral authority? For disciples of Jesus, it always has been and it always will be the Bible heard and obeyed in the life of the church. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, let's, let's do that together. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 26. What does Paul mean when he says that they exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature? What does he mean by that? Well, you have to understand that our whole text is set against the backdrop of Genesis 1 through 3, the first three chapters of the Bible. And, and you can see that because he uses some of the same language, things like creation, creator, image, likeness. He uses those words that we find in Genesis 1 through 3. And so if that's the backdrop, then nature and natural, as Paul says it here, it means God's creative order, his design for the universe. Because God has a design and a direction for everything, including your sexual desires. So... When we look at Genesis 1, we see that God does this in his creative brilliance. He creates a bunch of pairs of opposites. Okay, right? So he creates heaven and earth, this kind of vertical dimension. He creates land and sea, this horizontal dimension. And then he creates night and day, the temporal or the the time dimension. And the most beautiful moments are when these two opposites become one. When we see unity in diversity. Consider this with me for a moment. When night meets day during sunrise or sunset, is it not so glorious to see the sky painted in glorious colors? When land meets sea, what we call the coastline, it's, it's the most expensive real estate for a reason. Throughout scripture, sacred moments happen on mountaintops. Why? Because it's, it's viewed as if heaven is meeting earth in that place. We even have the language of a mountaintop experience. What is happening here? Well, creation reflects its creator. God himself in his very nature is unity in diversity. One God in three persons. And so when we get to the pinnacle of creation, humanity is made male and female, the personal dimension. And so it's not surprising when you read through Genesis 1, it's not surprising when the two become one flesh, it results in purpose, pleasure, and procreation. Why? Because it's the beauty of unity in diversity. And so according to Jesus in Matthew 19, which by the way, people will say nonsense like Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Jesus put forward the, the positive sexual ethic of scripture and he underlined it and underscored it in the most important terms in Matthew 19. So did he speak directly against homosexuality? No, but he spoke very positively for the biblical sexual ethic and its vision for human flourishing. That's really important. So in Matthew 19, the biblical pattern for sex as God designed it in Genesis 1 and 2 is not a generic heterosexuality. It's a marital union of fidelity between one man and one woman for one lifetime. 
This is why Bible scholar Nate Collins says this, in the moral exam of life, straight people don't get partial credit simply for being straight. Every one of us, gay and straight alike, experiences intrinsically disordered sexual desires. So it's not just gay sex, it's American sex, defined by the use of the other for my sexual gratification that is, to use Paul's word, shameless. It's shameless. Any way in which I use sex as a mirror to reflect back to myself my own sexual desires and selfish gratification is against God's creative design for sex. Let me just make it plain. God hates Tinder as much as Grinder. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus says that the issue with divorce is that it violates the union between male and female. It's a severing of that union. But on the flip side, in Romans 1, Paul says the issue with homosexual practice is that it violates the diversity of male and female. Do you see how unity and diversity must hold together on both sides? You cannot have union at the expense of diversity. You cannot have diversity at the expense of unity. And so, hear me say, Paul does not make homosexual practice the pinnacle of sinful behavior. He's not done yet and neither am I. In other words, he's about to jump into a long vice list of 21 vices, none of which are actually sexual in nature. So according to Romans 1, the distortion of the good gift of sex is not the reason for God's wrath, but the result of it. Here's another way to say that. God's wrath is seen in much of what our culture calls progress. David Wells put it like this, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Beware what you binge watch. So, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the final of three God gave them ups and it culminates in this list of moral fallout of human beings choosing to go our own way. And you're gonna see how society disintegrates as the moral fabric is torn at the seams. Look at verse 29 with me. They were filled to the brim with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full and flowing over with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are, here's sins of the tongue, they are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, all of those are forms of arrogance. They're inventors of evil. You could say that they're entrepreneurially evil. Disobedience to, disobedient to parents. Kids are like, wait, what? How did that get in there? It's in there. It's in the book. And he ends with these four foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know subjectively God's righteous decree objectively that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Is anyone remaining who is not implicated in either attitude or action in our text this morning? That last part says even if we don't practice every sin here, we may secretly approve or even envy when other people get away with doing those things. You can see why G. Campbell Morgan said that this is the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes will ever rest. But he went on to say, it's also the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. And let me show you that 
why that is in our closing point, God for humanity. Go to the top of the text with me. Verse 18, you can't pass over three-letter words. These are really important. Verse 18 begins with the word for, which means our text today picks up in the middle of an argument that comes out of verses 16 through 17 that I preached on last week. Verses 16 and 17 are about God saving righteousness for everyone who believes. Another way to say that is we must set the wrath of God in a gospel frame. It's the only way that we won't respond by shoving it down and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is merely the diagnosis before treatment. It's the black velvet to reveal the brilliant diamond. It's the scalpel cut before the healing surgery. It's the sad news before the glad news. You see, the gospel heightens human guilt in order to highlight divine grace. That's what's happening in our text. God's left hand of justice is chasing you right into his right hand of mercy. It's like when you're hiking and a terrible storm comes in and you have to flee for refuge somewhere. This text is helping you to stir you up to take safety, to take shelter in Jesus himself. To our three fatal exchanges, God offers his one great exchange. If the essence of sin is exchanging ourselves for God, then the essence of salvation is God exchanging himself for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's called the great exchange. Older saints had this idea called the double look. The double look is basically, how do we know God's ferocious hatred of sin? Look at the cross. But how do we know God's fierce love for sinners? Look at the cross. Both of them are manifested there. If we ignore the wrath of God, we do not need the cross of Christ. As the hymn puts it, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I live. We took the privileges that are due God, but on that cross, Jesus took the penalties that were due us. I don't know of anybody that says it better than Octavius Winslow. So I've got the quote up there because it's long. And let's just say at the beginning, a name like that is better than Ben Kant, right? Like he's got a leg up on me just by virtue of his name. This is what he says. The cross of Jesus displays the most awesome exhibition of God's hatred of sin. And at the same time, the most august manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of blood that is seen, is proclaimed in every groan that is heard, and shines in the very prodigy of mercy that closes the solemn scene upon the cross. Oh, blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here, the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless. I would add to that, those who are sexually disordered may come. Here too, the weary spirit may, be, may bring its burden. The broken spirit, its sorrow. The guilty spirit, its sin. The backsliding spirit, its wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor, guilty sinner.
Brothers and sisters, friends who struggle sexually, read the Gospels. See how Jesus treated sexual sinners who come to him. Read the end of Luke 7. Read the beginning of John 8, where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Love, go and sin no more. Truth. You see, he brings these things together because Jesus, the God-man, is the fullness of unity and diversity. He brings it together. And listen, Jesus knows, Jesus knows the pain of restrained desire. Jesus knows the grief of unrequited love. Jesus lived the most fully human existence ever, and he died a 33-year-old virgin. Let that sink into what, what we really believe about the importance of sexual inclinations. But Jesus is also a patient groom. He's still waiting for the day of consummation with his bride. The day when he takes his people to himself and the fullness that all of your desires point towards will be realized where you will be desired by the desirable. Where you will experience the climax of chaste joy and holy love. Jesus is waiting for that day just like we are. He feels the pain. He groans with us waiting for that day. And so listen, I've talked to plenty of people, I, I mean this sincerely, who would say something like, God hates me because I'm gay. They'd say something like, there's something utterly unlovable and unwanted in me. If that's you this morning, hear me say this. It's not that God wants less of you, it's that he wants more of you. Not more from you, more of you. Open yourself up to the love that you were designed for, for the union that all of your sexual desires point towards. That's the invitation this morning. And for all of us, wherever you find yourself this morning, here's an invitation to come to Jesus afresh. I take this from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. It's a dialogue of us hesitant to come to Jesus and Jesus' response to us. It says this, no wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand but I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I've come to help. The burden is heavier and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. But it's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in light of your love, the brilliant diamond against the black velvet backdrop of God's wrath, would you, would you change our preferences? God, we confess we will not worship our preferences anymore. We come to you, the fullness and the fountain of all mercy. Jesus, give us a glimpse of your cross. Draw sinners to yourself this morning. Holy Spirit, that's your work. Do it in Jesus' matchless name.
Amen.